Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be at Ohio State, even though I'm a boilermaker, but uh, I hope you don't take that against me. Um, if you notice, I uh, chose as a title uh, The Arab Awakening, uh, as opposed to what most people in this country use for the events that started last year, an Arab Spring. And whereas I strongly believe uh, that this process which started last year needed to start, needed to happen, and really the question has always been why did it not start before? I also think an Arab Spring is a misnomer because it raised expectations almost immediately uh, into people thinking that autocracies uh, can suddenly and immediately give way to democracies overnight. And when that did not happen, people's expectations were dashed. And what we're seeing today is not just a dashing of these expectations, but most people, whether here or in the region, not most people, many people here and in the region, starting to say, well, maybe the old order you know, was better, which is also equally unrealistic. The fact remains that the status quo in the Arab world was not sustainable. And uh, 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 the process of change needed to happen. And uh, we can argue why it happened uh, or did not happen before. The thing is, it is good in my view that it happened. It is the start of a very serious process, but it's a process that is going to take decades rather than months or years. And if we choose to judge it by what is happening on a day-to-day -day basis and judge it in months and years, we will all get the kind of heartburn that we have been witnessing in the region uh, of late. If we take a longer-term view and look at it in what I believe uh, uh, is a more realistic manner, if we look at it as a process of change which necessarily takes time, which necessarily needs to be bumpy at times, uh, uh, slow, uh, a process in which many political and economic mistakes will happen, if we accept that this is the case, we might look at this process in a more, not just realistic manner, but in my view, in a more optimistic manner as well. I would like to share with you maybe an, a bit of an unconventional uh, view of what is going on. Because as I said, I'm, I happen to be one of the more optimistic people about the future of this process. And I would like one year on after the uprising, move away from the day-to-day -day development and talk about some lessons that in my view we have already started learning from this process. This is not the first Arab awakening of the contemporary era. It is a second awakening. The first one was an awakening that resulted in <coughs> Arabs getting rid of Ottoman rule and colonial rule towards the uh, you know, beginning of the last century. But unlike the second Arab awakening, it was an elitist awakening in the last century. It was an awakening of ideas rather than an awakening of the street. Arabs did not see demonstrations in the street 
uh, uh, to get rid of Ottoman rule. It did not start this way. It started with an intellectual debate in places like Lebanon, Syria, and Egypt that started talking about uh, the need for the Arab world to have an awakening and to be free of colonial and foreign rule. And while the first Arab awakening did succeed in gaining independence for all Arab countries, what it miserably failed at is to develop pluralistic societies in the region. And the fact is today that secular forces, because then Islamist or religious forces did not rule in the Arab world, secular post-independent forces in the Arab world, whether they were progressive or conservative, whether they were republican or monarchist, whether they were nationalist or liberal, all secular forces in the Arab world did not give pluralism any due attention and ruled in an extremely authoritarian rule until the Arab uprisings of last year. The slogan that they raised uh, is best exemplified by President Nasser of Egypt in the 50s when he raised the slogan in Arabic, لا صوت يعلو فوق صوت المعركة. No voice is allowed to rise above that of liberation, meaning the liberation of Palestine. And Arabs bought that. Arabs bought that in return for Arab countries working to liberate Palestine, they can treat all other uh, issues as secondary. When Palestine was not liberated in 1967, the dream sort of was shattered almost instantaneously. And in my view, political Islam started to rise and to become popular uh, as of 1967, not as of 1979 with the Iranian revolution. But whereas the battle before in the Arab world was a battle between the state and between the religious opposition, it is today a battle between these forces of society on the ground that have different points of view. And so the seculars, the liberals, are starting to understand in the Arab world today that just as the Islamists successfully worked through constituent politics, through work on the ground, many secular uh, 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 forces chose to remain elitist in the past, to pontificate from behind a podium, just as this one, as opposed to working on the ground. And what people are understanding today in, in the region is that this does not work anymore. And if you want, if you want to win the hearts and minds of people, and if you want to, to, to represent them uh, in a credible manner, you've got to do what the Islamists are doing, which is to work on the ground. And this is the first, I think, major positive development that is coming out of the Arab uprising. The, the transformation from organized political activity, which has been labeled as, as uh, almost uh, 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 treasonous by Arab governments in the past, to the understanding today that only organized political activity is going to get you where you want to be uh, uh, and not anything else. <coughs> of course, 
one needs to understand and accept in, at the same time that work on the ground and opening up the political system uh, that is going on now is going to bring with it an unfair, if you want, advantage to the Islamist party, an advantage given to them by Arab governments who refused to open up political systems in the past and who gave Arabs basically two alternatives and two alternatives only. Either a political establishment that rules without a system of checks and balances or a religious opposition which is promising the moon but without having to put their uh, 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 promises to the test because they were artificially kept out of the system. And in such a situation, if an average citizen is not satisfied with the status quo, with, with, with his or her political establishment, the protest vote certainly will go towards the Islamists because they were the only alternative. <clears throat> we hear a lot today about uh, secular forces, and I'm one of them, by the way, <laughs> not an Islamist by any chance, who complain about the Islamist lack of commitment to pluralism. And while I think that Islamists also have been uh, vague, and again, Islamists are not monolithic in the Arab world, and they differ from country to country, but whereas in general, their commitment to pluralism has been vague at times, it is equally true that the secularist commitment to pluralism over the last 60 or 70 years has been more than, uh, <laughs> it, has, it has been very clear. There was a total lack of commitment to pluralism and what we need from now on is a commitment from both sides to pluralism at all times. The second uh, uh, lesson, I think, that Arabs are starting starting to understand is that for the lack of a better term I'll use uh, minorities but I don't like this term and, uh, for many reasons but I'll use it for the lack of a better term minorities in the Arab world Christians women groups sometimes have uh, relied on dictator regimes to give them part of their rights while ignoring the fact that these rights and others were denied to their fellow citizens. And so today, for example, women in Tunisia are understandably and justifiably concerned about the withdrawal of rights given to them by the old Tunisian regime. Rights that really went a long way towards given uh, giving women their, their, uh, uh, their legitimate rights. But I think, or I hope at least, that women in Tunisia and elsewhere will understand that these were given to them on a silver plate in an artificial manner in return, not, not, not in a quid uh, for quote uh, uh, basis, but, but in return, these same regimes committed a lot of atrocities towards their fellow citizens. And that from now on, getting your rights is going to once again have to go through 
organized political activity rather than relying on a dictator to do that for you. What we are witnessing in Syria is a prime case in point. The Christians in Syria today, not all of them, but probably a majority of them, still support the Assad regime, a regime that has killed at least 11,000 people so far. Why? Because they are afraid of the alternative. Because they are afraid that if an alternative regime comes to power, it might deny them uh, 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 these rights. But this concern, in my view, is going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you stand by a regime that not just kills your people, but if you put yourself in the place of a minority instead of a citizen that is or should be concerned about the rights of all of your fellow citizens, regardless of their ethnic or religious background. And I once again hope that this will be the second lesson from what it, the Arab awakenings that are, that are happening so far, which is that minorities or any group that wants political <coughs> or social rights will once again have to work at them through organized political activity. Third lesson, which in my view is one of the most important lessons uh, so far from the Arab awakenings, which is that there is no more holiness in politics. No secular holiness or religious holiness. Because in the past, secular forces who ruled the Arab world made it, you know, treasonous to criticize them in any way. And their, interpreta their interpretation of the truth was the one and only interpretation possible. Religious groups did exactly the same. Used the religion to, you know, to, to self-appoint a holiness to them uh, and make it sort of sacrilegious for anybody to criticize them because by doing so, they made it seem as if people were criticizing not just religion, but God himself or herself or however you want to look at it. Today, these two groups, the secular groups that refused to work on the ground and ruled by terror or force or uh, uh, authoritarian means, and the Islamists who were kept artificially out of the system by the political establishment, for the first time today, both of them are coming and fighting their battles on the political playing field. This is a first in the Arab world. This fight, this battle should have taken place 70, 80 years ago. It did not. But today it is. And today, what both sides are discovering is that they have no claim to holiness. That the secular parties today can criticize the Islamists right, left, and center, and they're doing so without the fear of feeling that they are criticizing God, and that the Islamists can criticize uh, the secular parties as well 
without the fear of being put in prison. It is today the start of a natural battle, as opposed to the artificial battle that was forged before. And the fourth lesson uh, that I think is very positive is that the end, the, the, we're witnessing the end to the era of rhetoric in the Arab world. Rhetoric by secular forces and rhetoric by uh, religious forces as well. For the last 80 years, rhetoric, you know, reform rhetoric reigned supreme in the Arab world. The Syrian regime sold itself to, the, to its citizens as well to the region as a whole, as a regime that has the banner of Arab nationalism, as a regime that stands up to Israel, as a regime that enjoys popularity and support of its own people. We're being recorded, so I, I won't use. Uh, <laughs> the, that's baloney now. No one believes in it now. And there was a time when people did believe in it. But you cannot kill 11,000 people of your own people and claim you're close to them and claim you're defending your in, their interests and claim a, a legitimacy that is simply not there. That, that's gone now. Bashar al-Assad, who has one of the three most popular leaders in the region, the other two were non-Arab, Erdogan of Turkey and Ahmadinejad of Iran, in polls until three years ago, today, you know, you, You'd, you'd, you'd fight to see him anywhere in the polls in the Arab world. Because people are starting to understand that, you know, this artificial crowning is over. <coughs> Jordan, for a very long time, has perfected the art of reform rhetoric, okay, and has said all the right things about its intent and willingness to implement reform. But if you look at the last 10 years in terms of results, rather than in terms of the rhetoric, you will see that there's a big, big gap between what has been implemented on the ground and between what has been promised before. The Islamists as well. <coughs> the Islamists have uh, successfully campaigned on, on, on the slogan, Islam is the solution. But Islam is the solution, does not create jobs, unless the Islamists are able to translate it into a detailed program of activity to show, for example, in a place like Egypt, what that program is that will get them out of the economic mess that uh, they are in today. Islamists all over the Arab world did not have to think about economy until recently. Their preoccupation was principally either on political reform issues or on ideology, in, in particular religious ideology. Today, if they run on these two, they will, they will suffer badly in the next election. You ask most Egyptians today, they're not pre-concerned with ideology. They want to know how their economy is going to improve. They want to know whether any government that comes to power is going to create jobs for them or not. And so the success or failure 
of whatever emerging governments are in the Middle East is going to necessarily uh, depend on their ability to deal with day-to-day -day problems rather than with uh, ideologies. In my own view, I think we have seen the peak uh, of uh, Islamic support in the region. And I, I would predict that in the next election, Islamists everywhere in the Arab world will not do as well as they did today. And I'll tell you why. We need to differentiate between popular support and electoral support for the Islamists. If you look at popular support, if you look at all the polls to see what is the support for Islamists in the region in different Arab countries is, you will see that it hovers everywhere between 15 to 20 percent. In Egypt, in Tunisia, in Morocco, in Jordan, and elsewhere. And yet, that 15 to 20 percent popular support has been translated into 37 percent electoral support in Tunisia, 30 percent in Morocco, 70 percent in Egypt. What does that tell you? It tells you that in a field that is not level, where the Islamists were the only ones organized, but also where because they were artificially out of the system, they could afford to promise the moon and not be tested for it. Today, once they rule, this is going to be a totally different ball game. I was uh, uh, I monitored, uh, you know, was part of an of a international uh, uh, delegation to monitor the elections in Tunisia uh, last uh, October. 116 parties contested the elections in Tunisia last year. One Islamist party and 115 secular parties. It is no you know, surprise uh, uh, the result that, we, that, was, that was achieved because the vote was divided among all the parties. But among the 116 parties, how many parties achieved any representation in parliament, let's say above two seats per party? Seven. In the next election, guess what? You're not going to see 115 parties. And already, there is a process of consolidation taking place in Tunisia. And by the way, this is not unique to Tunisia or the Arab world. In Spain, in the mid-70s, when Spain made the move to democracy after General Franco died, can you guess how many parties contested the first elections in Spain? 161 parties. We all know what the situation in Spain is today. You don't even have 10 parties. But that's a natural progression that's going to take place over time, uh, 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 the kind of progression that I uh, talked about before. Um, let me say a word about education. Uh, uh, before, before I open it up to questions. A pluralistic society in the Arab world 
is not going to develop smoothly with the present educational systems that we have in the region. Because whereas Arabs spend, spend a lot of money on education, 5% on average of their GDP is devoted to education. And whereas Arabs did a lot in terms of the quantity of education, in closing the gender gap, in building schools, in even putting computers to schools, in trying to improve uh, scores in you know, maths and sciences in international uh, test exams. All of these are important, but Arabs have done almost zero, almost zero, in terms of a quality of education that emphasizes critical thinking, scientific reasoning, relative rather than absolute truth, that encourages dissent, encourages people to think differently, to question what their teachers give them. Because the, the, the notion in the past has been that if you do that, you create uh, you know, <laughs> a rebellious population. And it is better to keep that population docile by telling them what to think rather than how to think. The end result, of course, we all know has been exactly the opposite. That this population, unable to find jobs because they don't have the required skills to enter the job market, and an economy that is unable to create enough jobs for a very youthful population, 70% of the Arab world is less than 30 years of age. And using traditional means and traditional education methods, the Arab world is never going to be able to create that many jobs. The only way you can do it is to encourage productivity, innovation, creativity, critical thinking. We were just talking a while ago and uh, mentioning the curse of oil in the Arab world. Because oil has really, truly been as much a curse as it has been a blessing. It has taught us all in the region not to be productive. If money literally grows on the ground, there's no need to uh, uh, work harder, basically. And unless we do, we're not going to be able to create the kind of jobs we did. I come from, uh, you know, I was educated at AUB and I know I'm on the board of trustees and this is going to sound very propagandish. Uh, but it is the kind of education, it's a rare, it's a rare education that encourages critical thinking and scientific reasoning. This is a university that has existed for the last 150 years and has graduated some of the best minds of the Arab world from all walks of life from the Islamists on the right to the communists on the left. Uh, uh, and it is this kind of thinking and this kind of education that we badly need in the region if we want the process of evolution towards pluralistic societies to be a smooth one. So in my own view, I do not look at this battle as a battle between the secularists and the Islamists. And I hope we don't fall into this trap in the Arab world, to look at it as a battle between secular and religious elements. Rather, I would like it to be a battle for pluralism, 
a battle for people who believe in pluralism on both sides against those who don't believe in pluralism on both sides. Because if we don't make it such a battle, I'm afraid that the second Arab awakening might face the uh, end that the first Arab awakening did, getting rid of a system uh, but ending up with you know, the same system disguised in, in other means. And only if we understand in the Arab world that the road to prosperity and stability necessarily has to go through the gate of pluralism. Unless we understand that, I'm afraid we're going to be faced with a very long uh, and turbulent period before we achieve stability. Thank you very much. Political Islam in this country is often seen by the average American as monolithic uh, and, and, uh, and as violent. Uh, when people think of political Islam here, the first thing that comes to mind is either Al-Qaeda or maybe Hamas or Hezbollah. And whereas these are certainly violent streams in political Islam, they of course remain a very tiny minority among political Islam. Most of political Islam belongs to the Muslim Brotherhood and its offshoot. Uh, you know, a movement that started in Egypt in 1928 and its offshoots today in many places in the Arab world, including in Morocco, in, Li in Libya, in Jordan, in Kuwait, in Tunisia. So that's the, f and, and that group and its offshoots, one is peaceful, they don't carry arms. They have not carried arms for the last 60 years, maybe. But two is not monolithic itself. You look at the Islamic uh, 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 movement in Tunisia, Al-Nahda, its views are far more moderate than, let's say, the Islamic Action Front in Jordan, uh, or, or uh, certainly more moderate than, uh, than the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. Uh, and as you said, in Egypt itself, now you have this, this sort of new political movement, the Salafists, that is coming up. Uh, a, a movement that openly does not believe in pluralism. Openly uh, espouses a system uh, that does not believe in pluralism. And that, that is a concern, although it is early to tell whether these, this is a transient movement or really a more uh, uh, sustained, uh, sustained one. If you look at the, uh, at, at the evolution of political uh, uh, positions 
uh, held by the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, but in, you know, in many other parts of the Arab world, there is no question in my mind that you can see two, two things. One is that their political ideology has evolved in a moderate way tremendously during the last you know, 50 years. It is also, in my view, equally true that their commitment to absolute pluralism, when I say you know, absolute pluralism, I mean peaceful rotation of power, uh, protection of minority rights, protection of individual rights, commitment to pluralism at all times, is less than categorical, even with their sort of evolution. And that is why they must make that, uh, 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 that commitment clear. Because if you talk to them, you know, they will tell you they are committed. But then there's always a, a, a play with words that leaves you, you know, less than totally convinced. If you talk to the Tunisian, Islamic party, frankly, you know, I mean, I might be naive, but I haven't heard anything that, that, that I found alarming uh, with the Tunisian uh, Islamic party. So these are at different uh, phases in their development. And I think that people in the Arab world will see, and very, very soon, that those countries where the commitment to pluralism is strongest are the countries that will make it, uh, you know, smoother and quicker than the rest. And Tunisia is a clear case. They have a moderate Islamic party, a coalition government, a constitution writing process by consensus, a neutral army, uh, 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 an economy which has not collapsed because of the com coming of the Islamists. I mean, they're doing, I'm not saying, of course, things are perfect in Morocco, but they are moving along the path to democracy in a much smoother way than the Egyptians are doing, because the Egyptians are still boggled down with a lot of internal divisions, but also with a less than clear commitment, mind you, not by the Islamists alone, by the liberals also. The liberals, uh, the liberals mistake of the last 60 or 70 years is being repeated in Egypt today, I think. Because the liberals are ready to join forces with, for example, the military you know, uh, uh, establishment now, which is ruling the country, in an undemocratic way to prevent the Islamists from coming to power. You allow yourself to be undemocratic once, and then you allow others to do the same unto you. That's not being done in Tunisia. And uh, so I think in, in Egypt, both the liberals and the Islamists are not being wise, frankly, and will suffer as a result. Although I still believe that in the end, Egypt is a country of, you know, a civilization of 5,000 years and, and they will make it. But uh, they'll probably go through a period of no less than 10 years before they do so.
Well, it is an irony uh, in the Arab world that the monarchies seem to be doing better than the republics. Uh, different reasons. Uh, one, well, the monarchies in the Arab world, for those who don't know, are eight monarchies. Okay, I call them the six rich monarchies and the two poor monarchies. The six rich monarchies are the monarchies of the Gulf. I mean, I don't know if you consider Bahrain rich, but, but you know, still. And the poor monarchies of Jordan and Morocco. In the poor monarchies, you have this uh, uh, irony that the, the, the monarchies are more legitimate than the republics. The, the leaders enjoy legitimacy, uh, historical, religious, uh, you name it. And so the protests in these, in these two countries are not calling for regime change. They both want the monarchy to stay, but they're calling for serious changes within the regime. They're not happy with the way the monarchy has been uh, ruling the country in both countries, and they are calling for serious changes that would result in power sharing. That's the criteria of seriousness in my view. Anything that results in ad hoc programs here and there, training of rural areas on how to elect, uh, you know, I mean, this, this is all good and fine, but it doesn't lead to power sharing. Uh, uh, so the, 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 the protests in these, the demands in these two countries are toward power sharing. The rich monarchies so far are trying to do it with money. Right? They were trying to slow down the process with, by giving money. Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, last year gave their citizens $130 billion uh, in one go uh, uh, in an attempt to uh, slow down the process. And I think it will be slowed down, uh, but, but it will not, uh, it will not uh, go away because much of the protest does not have to do with the economy, unlike what Arab leaders will, will tell you. This is not a crisis that can be bought off with money. This is a, a crisis about governance. This is a crisis where people, you know, are not happy with the low level of governance that they are seeing in their country and are demanding better governance. That's why, Dr. Ali, I like to uh, actually, rather than divide the Arab world into republics and monarchies, I use another division, and I say, the Arab world is divided between those who have some time left and those whose time is up. <laughs> and I say this because for the longest time, again, the Arab world made the argument that it has special circumstances, the Arab-Israeli conflict, what have you, that prevented it from moving on reforms. And, you know, for the longest time, it, the argument worked and people said, see, there are no people on the street. What are we worried about? Until last year. Those whose time is up basically gave the pace of reform over to the street. Because people, when, 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 they, when, they, uh, you know, when they gave up on their governments carrying a serious reform process, said, let's, let's try to do it ourselves. And the street is great at starting reform. It's never good at institutionalizing it. That is why the countries that have some time left, like Morocco and Jordan and the Gulf countries, can, can look at this time in two ways. They can either say, let us invest this time wisely, 
in putting in place a serious reform process that is gradual, that does not introduce shocks to the system, but that is serious and does result in power sharing. I understand it's a very difficult argument. People that are used to having it all, you know, are not going to be convinced easily of sharing their power. But the other alternative, of course, is to give up power totally. Unfortunately, I think what is happening in these countries that do have some time left is that they are sort of convincing themselves that they are immune. And that uh, because they have not seen protests like other Arab countries, they don't need to do much. And of course, the, the uprisings have clearly shown no country is immune, whether it is rich or poor, whether it is it has strong security services or don't, say Egypt and Libya. It doesn't matter. In the end, in the end, change was coming. This is where I think, uh, 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 where I'm concerned, because I still believe, as improbable as it is, I still believe that reform from above in the Arab world stands a better chance of uh, moving towards a smoother process than what is being done today. On Syria, Syria is a, is a huge tragedy. Syria is a, is, a, is a tragedy because you have a system that looks at things as a zero-sum game. This is not a system interested in reform, mild or serious, because any reform process for this minority regime is necessarily going to mean that the regime will go out. As a result, the regime, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, there are no efforts that will succeed uh, uh, because the regime is not going to accept a transition process that leads to free elections, that leads to the regime leaving power. And to stay in power, this regime, as we have seen, is uh, ready to do anything. And it has. Uh, unfortunately, again, we have an, an international situation which is complicated. The Russians and the Chinese don't want to repeat the Libyan experience. The, the opposition in Syria is divided. There are some who do want military intervention by the others, others who don't want such an intervention. And there are, frankly, valid arguments for both. It's difficult to tell. And so we're facing a situation where this is going to take some time. But in my own view, the end result is uh, clear which is that this regime has no possibility of surviving. Uh, 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 the, the question is how bloody it will get before this happens, uh, is the only question. very comfortable having dictatorships, uh, being surrounded by dictatorships who, 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 who would talk tough, but Israel always knew they never would do anything because it could jeopardize their power. Um, with the advent of, this, of, you know, of democracy, recognizing that it might take 20 years, but nevertheless, with the evolution of democracy, Israel's worst nightmare. And 
because then they're going to recognize that these the leadership in Syria or Jordan or Egypt or Libya or wherever has to 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 a great degree be subject to the willing of the you know the, the, the whims of their people who put them into office you know by election. So I, I'm fascinated to get your thoughts on how you think the Israeli posture is going to be going forward over the course of the next you know decade relative to, to the advent of democracy in the, in the region. Uh, that's a, a very important question. Uh, and there are so many angles I want to cover. I, I hope I'll think of them all. Israel has just switched its argument once the Arab uprising started. Because Israel, Israel's argument in the past has been that exact, well, it has been that we cannot forge peace with autocrats. Because if we have democracies, we want to make sure that these autocrats represent their country. And therefore, we need to wait until such democracies emerge before we are able to forge peace. Almost overnight, they switched the argument after last year. Now the argument is, we cannot forge peace with these people. We want stability. And until we get stability, we're not going to forge peace. I'm, uh, for those who don't know, uh, you know, I was Jordan's first ambassador to Israel. And I was uh, uh, part of the peace process from its inception in Madrid in 91 until today. So I, I have a lot of experience, uh, not just with the peace process, but with a commitment to peace and uh, with uh, uh, experience uh, dealing with Israelis. We are facing a situation today where time is not on Israel's favor. And I'm not even talking about the Arab-Israeli, uh, the, uh, the Arab uprising so far. Because we made a huge fatal error, in my view, in the last 20 years, in accepting a process of peace that was going on while the status quo was not frozen. To make it simple, I liken it to two people uh, arguing over a piece of pizza while one of them is eating it. <laughs> Doesn't work. And that's what the Palestinians found themselves in. They were negotiating the future of the West Bank and Gaza while the, settler activi the settlement activity kept growing. And we moved from a situation at the time when Oslo, the Oslo Agreements were signed in 1993, when the number of settlers in the West Bank and East Jerusalem was 250,000, to a situation today where the number of settlers in the same area is 500,000 plus, in an area of 2 million. In other words, today, the West Bank has 25% of its inhabitants are Israeli settlers. How on earth, even if we sign tomorrow morning on a two-state solution, are we going to implement this solution? How do you evacuate these people? Even if, even if 
the settlers on the green line are given to Israel, the land is given to Israel, you're still going to be faced with 70 to 80,000 settlers in the heart of the West Bank and another 150,000 settlers in East Jerusalem. That's one. The, the difficulty of implementing a solution. Two, the demographic factor. Today, the number of Arabs and Jews in the areas under Israel's control is exactly the same. And I'm quoting official Israeli statistics, not Arab statistics. 5.8 million Jews reside today in Israel and 5.8 million Arabs reside in Israel, the West Bank and Gaza. Which means that if you, there is no two-state solution very fast, we are going to be faced with the reality that there won't be a solution in the short term. And in the long term, Palestinians will demand the only logical thing they can in the absence of a two-state solution, which is equal rights within the areas they live in. Equal rights within the areas they live in is the destruction of Israel as a Jewish and a democratic state. This is all without the Arab uprising. You add in the Arab uprising, and Israel is going to be faced with emerging Arab governments who will be far more critical of the occupation than their old regimes were. Can you imagine today if Israel goes into Lebanon or into Gaza, like it did in 2006 and 2008? Can you imagine the Egyptian government having the same reaction it had five years ago? It's going to be a totally new ball game. And so Israel's concern of a hostile neighborhood is going again to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. If they don't do something about the occupation today, we don't have, I don't think we have two years. Frankly, I, I think, I think it's, it's over. As the two-state solution, in my view, is over. But, you know, I can say this, I'm out of government. Those in government will tell you we still have some time left. Whatever the case, if we don't move uh, uh, quickly towards peace, uh, I'm afraid that we're going to face a very, very turbulent period in the, in the future. And Israel today has no answer to this question. I have asked many Israeli officials, many, too many to even uh, count, what is your long-term survival strategy if there is no two-state solution? What do, you, what do you propose to do? indefinitely rule over the West Bank and Gaza, uh, have a two-tier citizenship model where the, the, the Palestinians are less than full citizens, push the Palestinians out, attempt to uh, hand over Gaza to the Egyptians and the West Bank to the Jordanians in a way that neither Egypt or Jordan wants. I mean, so many solutions have been offered, none of them make sense other than a two-state solution. But uh, uh, 20 years after the peace process in Madrid started, I cannot, uh, I cannot say that I'm optimistic about the chances for a two-state solution today. And that is bad news, frankly, for Israel. It's not just bad news for the Palestinians not to have their own state. The Israelis? 
I'm not sure they, 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 they have the means to do so, frankly. I mean, I, I, think, I, think, uh, I think this is, this is too big of a movement to be able to influence uh, easily. Uh, uh, in the Arab world, and I, I you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'll say this. I'll say something that might be provocative. For the Israeli right that is ruling Israel today, this is the end game. What we have in the West Bank and Gaza is the end game for Israel, for the Israeli right, ruling government. In other words, I don't think the Israeli right today is interested in a solution where they will have to make major compromises in their view on Jerusalem, on the West Bank and Gaza, on borders. Uh, they're not prepared to do so ideologically. And so uh, uh, I think the Israeli right just looks at today's uh, situation and uh, just hopes, hopes that things somehow will change for the better 10 years or 20 years from now. They don't want to think 10 or 20 years down the line in a very, very short-sighted way. And instead of worrying about this as, in my view, the true existential threat for Israel, they talk about Iran as the existential threat. And, you know, I, I agree Iran is a very radical and, 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 and hardline country. I don't think Iran is a stupid country to drop an atomic bomb just like that on Israel. But what the Iranian uh, 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 debate has done is that it has diverted people's attention from the real issue to talk about a hypothetical which, in my view, is not, uh, is not as important. And, uh, 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 I, I'm afraid that we might face a situation where Iran, which is today a country on the decline in the Arab world, if, 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 I, have to, if I have to name the biggest loser uh, 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 from the Arab uprisings, I will say Iran and Israel. Iran, which has sold itself again as a country on the side of the oppressed, as a country that stands up to the West, as a country, you know, you know all the... the it's all baloney now. After their 2009 internal uh, uh, you know, protests and their support of the Syrian system, which has killed 11,000 people so far, nobody in the Arab world believes them. I mean, I'm not just saying this. Look at the polls. Nobody believes them anymore. For Israel to strike Iran today in an attempt to stop them from acquiring a, a, a nuclear bomb will neither stop them and all military experts will tell you, at most, they, they will delay them by a couple of years and will resurrect them back from the dead in the Arab world and in their own country. Uh, so we're, we're facing a very, very, I, I think, I think uh, in my view, gloomy situation when it comes to the Arab-Israeli conflict. I think we have a, a can I, yeah, a woman there, and we'll, we'll, come, we'll get back. I have all the time in the world if you do. I don't. <laughs> okay, well, my question is um, in all the lessons that you went over that came out of the Arab uprising, what role do you see the international community, and specifically the U.S., playing to continue to encourage democracy? And then, 
Thank you. Two, two very important questions as well. Um, I think we need to realize uh, that there's a tendency in this country uh, uh, since the Arab uprising to say, what can we do, which is very noble. Okay? And my answer is not going to be as noble. I'm afraid not much. I think that the power of the US, frankly, is on the decline not just in the Middle East, but around the world. And I think that in particular in the Middle East, forget the Arab-Israeli conflict because the credibility of the US has suffered for a long time because of it. But two main developments in the Arab world in, in the last decade that further shows the decline of US power. The war on Iraq, which showed the Arab world the limit of US military power despite 500,000 troops that came to Iraq, you know, they could not declare victory. They, 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 there were obvious limits to US military power. There's no European Marshall Plan. Europe has its own problems to take care of. And there's no Arab Marshall Plan because the money that Arabs have reside in countries that are not interested in reform are not going to support this reform process. So we can talk about the US, you know, playing a coordinating role. We can talk about, uh, uh, you know, free trade agreements. And I mean, there are things that can do things here and there. But in the end, I think it's going to be the responsibility of the region itself. I'm not sure what the US can do. Uh, in, in a major way. Uh, what, would, what would my formula be? If you ask any average Arab or Israeli today on the street to tell you what the framework for a solution looks like, they will be able to do so blindly. In other words, we are not in search of a solution. We know what the solution is. This is a solution that has been negotiated over 20 years. I don't think there has been one single stone that has not been you know, turned over 10 times. The issue of refugees, of Jerusalem, of borders, of security, of water, of everything has been negotiated ad nauseum. And so we're not looking for it. We know what the parameters are. I mean, they, people will differ here and there. It's not, it, the differences are not huge. What has been lacking is a political commitment by a third party, meaning the United States, to put such a solution, you know, uh, uh, or, 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 or catal uh, act as a catalyst to expedite such a solution before it is too late. And people here, you know, have arguments that, frankly, uh, uh, don't stand up to the historical record. I'll tell you some of them. We, we can't want peace more than the parties themselves, okay? Sorry, bull. This is a U.S. national interest, as the U.S. itself says. This is in the U.S. national interest. If it is in the U.S. national interest, then you obviously don't want to leave it hostage to one or two parties if, if it is a US national interest. Uh, we can't impose a solution 
bull. First of all, you're not imposing a solution. This is a solution that has already been negotiated by the parties themselves, as I have said. And second, there are many instances in the past when the U.S. intervened. What about the Clinton parameters of 10 years ago? Wasn't that an attempt to impose a solution? Why wasn't it called an imposition then, and today it is called an imposition? There are things that are just said sometimes, I think, without, without, without much thought. I believe the United States needs to put a package on the table. And the package is known to everybody. And frankly, sometimes the parties want the U.S. to put a package on the table because they can blame it on the U.S. if they cannot blame it on themselves. Instead of saying we cannot compromise on this issue, we, they can say we were forced to do it. Uh, but if that is not done, as I said, in a speedy manner, uh, it might be too late. When President Obama came to power, you know, he uh, uh, gave a very forthcoming speech in Cairo. He gave all the signals that he intended to solve the conflict. He appointed a special envoy, Senator uh, 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 Mitchell. And then he went back to doing things the same old way. You know, a peace process which is slow, which doesn't get you anywhere. For three years, when everybody was uh, convinced for the 10th time that this was not a futile approach, the United States position now is, we're sorry, we are in an election year. We cannot do much. But you were not in an election year four years ago. And, 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 and I'm afraid that by the time, uh, it's, it's obvious, of course, it's, it's not a secret that the Obama administration today has postponed any move on the Arab-Israeli conflict till after the elections, if, if they would move after the elections and if they will win. If the Republicans win, and I'm not here to you know, comment on U.S. domestic policy, but on the Arab-Israeli conflict, if the Republicans win, the Republicans are on record as saying they're not going to touch them. Uh, and, and if the Democrats, at least not in, in the presidents, in, in Romney's, let's say, first term, and if Obama wins, we also don't know whether, whether President Obama is going to pick up the issue once again. And when he does, I'm personally not sure whether it will not be too late. Yes, sir. Um, thank you very much for your very interesting talk. One question, uh, two questions, actually. Um, could you please say something about um, Yemen and Libya? Um, and the second question is, do you have some ideas regarding the time, why the uprising happened last year or the year before? Why not before? Why not later? Well, to the second question, I don't know. I'll tell you, I mean, I wrote a book three years ago called The Arab Century. And I argued in the book. The book was published in June 2008. And I argued in the book that Arab moderates cannot keep their moderation limited to the peace process. Because that's the definition of, of Arab moderates here. And that if they don't give reform the needed attention, the status quo is not sustainable. 
So I can claim I was right in what I said. I could not predict when it would happen, and frankly, I was as surprised as you were that it happened in, in, in such uh, haste, uh, uh, and it, that it spread so quickly. But why now and not before or after? You know, I mean, there are many theories. Uh, to me, it doesn't matter. No, the, the, the important thing is that it did happen, and I believe this is an irreversible process, even if it is, even if it is a problematic one. Yemen is a failed state before the Arab uprising. Yemen has so many problems uh, before the Arab uprising. It has, uh, you know, uh, it's a tribal system uh, with many uh, divisions. It has the problem of Al Qaeda. It has the problem of Al Houthis in the north. It has the problem of you know, South Yemen versus North Yemen in the past, in the, in the south. Uh, a change of leader is not going by itself to do it in Yemen. If, there is, if it is not coupled with a change of uh, governance, which so far, in my view, has not happened. Even Ali Abdullah Saleh is still governing through his sons, through his brothers, so I mean, I mean you know, they're still there. Uh, and they're still leading, leading some of the some of the uh, army units. So what we have what we have witnessed in in Yemen so far is a frustration with the leader, with Ali Abdullah Saleh, and success in pushing him out. I'm not sure that we are yet seeing in Yemen uh, move towards pluralism and democracy. And I think that is going to take more time. Libya is a very interesting case because Libya is another tribal society, another country that is very modern. It was a federal arrangement until very recently, you know, and only in the 60s did uh, uh, King Sanusi uh, unified the whole country. It has no army, no civil society, no private sector, no institutions, no political parties. Uh, what did I miss? Uh, <laughs> it has nothing. It has nothing except money, right? It has lots of money, which is important. And if you if you if you take this into consideration, that they are literally starting from scratch, literally, they're not doing that bad. Or or, or maybe I shouldn't. Let me say, it's remarkable what they have been able to achieve, given the fact that they have nothing. They have conducted uh, 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 local elections. Uh, the, they have tried to make the Transitional Council more transparent through elections. They, have, uh, 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 they are moving on, on national elections in June. Uh, they're moving on uh, trying to reintegrate the military into the army and, 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 uh, and security. The country has not fallen apart. Uh, but, you know, given all that, they have huge, huge challenges uh, to face. Uh, and they will take a long time, in my view. But, as I said, uh, given that they're starting from scratch, it's rather, it's rather remarkable what what they have been able to achieve. Please. Oh, or. Oh, well, I, you may, you may hear what you answer, 
Uh, yes, I, mean, I think there is truth in that. I don't think it's the whole truth because there are other factors than leaders. There are discourses also. And I think that sort of on Israel's side, the Zionist discourse, in my view, has exhausted its limits. This Zionist uh, idea of building a state while ignoring the fact that on this state that you are building, there exists another population, is coming now head to head with reality. A reality that has been ignored by the Zionist discourse in the past. Ben-Gurion you know, talked publicly about inclusion of the Arabs, but in reality, of course, uh, you know, helped drive them out. Uh, uh, the Zionist discourse, regardless of the leader, has to change. And it has not done uh, so far. Uh, the, the Palestinian discourse, in my own view, has actually changed more than the Zionist one did, in that the Palestinian discourse today, a majority, accept today the fact that they're not working for you know, historical Palestine, but rather for the West Bank and Gaza. And whereas this, this position was, was seen as, uh, again, treasonous uh, 40 or 50 years ago, today it is the majority of Palestinians who believe in this. But the Palestinians have not also had strong leaders. I agree with you. Now, in order to circumvent this, the Arabs came up with uh, with something uh, I think that was very forthcoming 10 years ago, which attempted to change the argument. And they said, okay, if the Palestinians and the Israelis cannot give what the other side really needs in order to forge peace, let's change the goalpost. And instead of talking about a Palestinian-Israeli agreement, let's talk about an Arab-Israeli agreement. Because in a Palestinian-Israeli agreement, Israelis are going to feel that in return for what to them will be some very painful compromises, they're going to get peace with half the Palestinians. 
That's not an attractive offer. And that Palestinians are going to feel that in return for what will be painful compromises to them as well, they're going to be labeled as traitors by their other half and by the Arab world at large. So we said, let's bring the Arab world and let the Arab world commit itself, all of the Arab world, not just those countries that have territorial problems with Israel. Let all the Arab world commit to peace and security for Israel so that the Israelis can feel confident that in return for their painful compromises, they're getting peace and security with everyone, and the Palestinians can feel confident that in return for their painful compromises, they have an Arab umbrella. They're not going to be you know, called traitors by the Arab world. And that was the idea of the Arab Peace Initiative, uh, which was uh, passed in Beirut in 2002. And it did not depend on a Palestinian leader. In fact, the Palestinian leader could not even attend the meeting because he was under siege there. It did not depend. It depended on, a, on an idea. Sharon, who was the prime minister of Israel at that time, totally, totally ignored the initiative. Because in my view, and I, I, I keep saying this, in my view, the Israeli right has a problem with a two-state solution. It has an ideological problem today in a solution that where you will have to compromise on Jerusalem. You will have to compromise on the West Bank and Gaza. And the right is not ready to do so. But in not being ready to do so, it is ignoring an even bigger problem, which is coming down the road in 10 years. And I don't know what they're going to do about it. You, we all know the joke about the, you know, the guy who was falling from the 10th floor of a building. And as he goes down, he meets the guy on the balcony of the first building. And the guy at the balcony says, how is it going, friend? And the guy says, so far, so good. And that's what Israel you know, seems to be doing. The, the wall in Israel, which really has succeeded in stopping almost all suicide bombing, has also succeeded in giving Israelis a false sense of security. Because they, they now feel, we don't have to do anything. We're not being bombed. We're not being killed. Our economy is doing great. It's as if the Arab-Israeli conflict does not exist. But they're ignoring the, the fire that is <laughs> building on their other, because they can't see it. There's a wall. They cannot see it. I'm not going to disagree with you on this. Uh, uh, 
there is a notion that uh, has developed in the United States in the last, let's say, 10 or 15 years that uh, somehow believes the Arab-Israeli conflict can be solved with American leadership at no cost. And, you know, nothing in life is cost-free, of course, and the Arab-Israeli conflict is not an exception. But recent American presidents want to solve it at no cost. Uh, because it might upset, you know, uh, the AFAC lobby because, because they don't want to uh, compromise other positions. That has not always been the case. If you remember uh, the Egyptian-Israeli uh, uh, peace treaty, and if you go through the memoirs of so many people who wrote about it, you would find that if President Carter was not very forceful with the two leaders, that treaty would not have been signed. Uh, nobody called it, you know, once they signed it, nobody called it an imposition of peace. The three of them got peace, you know, Nobel uh, Peace Prizes. But it's a fact that you, you do need to exert some political uh, influence. If you remember when President Bush Sr., you know, refused to give Sharon uh, uh, loan guarantees that would be uh, used to build settlements in 1991, uh, not Sharon, Shamir, I mean. And Shamir, the Israeli Prime Minister, threatened, you know, to take it to Congress to stop the process. President Bush said, well, I will go to the American people. And he won the argument. And the loan guarantees were not given. So, I mean, when you do have leadership, the president has a lot of leeway in foreign policy, but somehow, uh, somehow that leadership is not always exercised. I agree with you. Please, yeah, you, you, yeah, um, you've been very patient with me. Well, I don't know. I hope so. I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what the Arab awakening has done to U.S. policy or, or, or has the potential of doing to U.S. policy. And I've had many discussions with U.S. officials who tell me, particularly right after the awakening, we need to do this right this time. We don't want to fall in the trap. This was uh, at the time that Egypt still was undergoing the protests and President Mubarak had not uh, left yet. 
we don't want to fall into the trap of supporting dictators for such a long time that we lose or we risk losing the support of the population after he leaves, much like we did with, let's say, Mossadegh in Iran in the early 50s. So there was and, and, and still is uh, a realization that the old US policies in the region, which sort of prioritized stability over democracy, and treated the peace process as if, if it had no links with these two. There is a realization in the US that this policy has failed. Having said that, there is a lot of confusion of how to change the policy in a way that prioritizes democracy over stability while preserving US interests. Because obviously, the US uh, response to Libya has been different than the response to Bahrain. Both peoples were calling for democracy, but Bahrain had interests different from those of the US. When you come to the Palestinians in particular, if the US is serious about regaining a credibility which it had lost, you know, of course for decades because of the Arab-Israeli conflict, but has been compounded by the Iraq war uh, 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 10 years ago. If the US wants to regain this popularity and credibility, credibility, let me not say popularity, it's going to be awfully difficult for it to tell Egyptians or Libyans or Tunisians or Syrians or Yemenis that are yearning for freedom, hey guys, we're with you. And to tell Palestinians yearning for freedom, you know, it's complicated. That's not, a pol that's not an argument that will sit well if, if the US is serious about regaining this credibility. And, you know, I, I, I don't see the US moving in, in this direction. I don't see it at all which is going to be problematic because it will not affect the U.S. standing on the Arab-Israeli conflict only. It will affect its standing with, you know, with the, all the peoples of the region who will see in this a double, a double standard policy. Please, Michael. I, I'm sorry, I think I've, I've taken, can we have Michael's question and maybe, I'll, I'll, well. All right, good.
A two-state solution that uh, is implemented without economic ties uh, is not going to result in a viable uh, uh, situation for the Palestinians. There's, I think, no question about it. If you look at, uh, at, uh, at the geography of the region, if you look at uh, the fact that the Palestinians really are landlocked, you know, there are very, very, very few, if any, countries in the world that have made it when they're landlocked. Uh, uh, very few. I, I, I'm trying to think of one who's doing well and is landlocked. Uh, if, if, if you have uh, Switzerland, okay. Uh, the, the, thank you, thank you. Uh, but not many, not many. Uh, so there is no question uh, that it was going to require economic cooperation, but there's also no, no question that uh, uh, economic ties are also not going to come, you know, if people uh, feel they are living under occupation. There are 500 checkpoints in the West Bank today. At one point, there were 650. If you want to move between Jerusalem and Ramallah, for those who know the region, a 10-minute drive, it might take you two days today to move from Jerusalem to Ramallah because of the war because of the checkpoints. So you can't build an economy also with an occupation. Uh, but I, I, totally, I, I, I totally agree with you that you also cannot uh, you know, have a, a two-state solution without economic ties. That's not uh, going to work, uh, to work uh, either. That, by the way, is a, is a lesson that Arab governments, I think, and countries will also learn uh, uh, beyond the Arab-Israeli conflict. This, the Arab region is a region that does not trade with itself. 93% of the trade between the Arab countries and the world takes, you know, take part uh, uh, outside the region. Only 7% of trade happens within the region. And in the absence, uh, uh, the question earlier about, about uh, what the U.S. can do, in the absence of monetary solutions, uh, by the U.S. or Europe, solutions are going to have to come from within, where you know Arabs will have will will trade more with themselves. Regional integration will take place. Without uh, them doing so, the the region is going to remain a collection of small markets that cannot do it uh, on them, you know, by 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 themselves. Yes, sir. <laughs> When I when I was uh, Jordan's ambassador to Israel, it was a it was a it was a different era, 
and uh, you know, under the Labour government in Israel, I mean, Rabin, for example, who was prime minister, was no hero of the Arabs. I mean, he was he was he was uh, in his time also very brutal towards the Arabs. But he understood the point that you're making that unless you know Palestinians feel uh, economically uh, better, this is going to be a problem that will, will haunt Israel. You cannot create a ghetto on your you know, borders and, and pretend that things are going to go well for you forever because you're doing well. This Israeli government uh, uh, is behaving in what I and I think you would see as, as an illogical way. It doesn't make sense. I agree with you. It doesn't make sense what they're doing economically to the Palestinians, the checkpoints that they are using, the, the, this whole policy uh, 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 just, I think, will, 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 will drive them uh, into a corner. I, I, I don't have an answer for you. Why, why is Israel not doing so? Other than what I uh, continue to believe uh, is a policy by this government, not by the whole of Israeli society, uh, uh, that sees uh, in uh, what the Palestinians have as an end game and hoping that somehow conditions in the territories are going to be so difficult for them that they will end up leaving. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah.